Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is our 550th show of ROI. And our guest today is Dr. Levi Roach, Associate Professor of Medieval History at the University of Exeter. We're going to be talking about his book, Empires of the Normans, Conquerors of Europe. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. So to begin with, welcome to the show, Levi. Thank you for having me on. We are very excited. Our first uh, segment is called Farouk Dinarin, and what we really just want to do is give our, our listeners a little bit of background. So if you can start us off with some basic information. Who are the Normans? Where do they come from? So the Normans are a people we associate with modern Normandy, i.e. a part of France in the very northwest of France along the coastline. But in origin, their name, Normans, actually comes from the medieval term Northmen, which was a term for the Vikings. And what happened is that this is an area where uh, there was significant Viking settlement. So as some listeners will be aware, the Vikings are attacking large swathes of Western Europe in the 8th and 9th centuries. And in the process of this, particularly over time, they suddenly start settling in some of these areas. And crucially, a fairly large and powerful group established themselves on the Seine River, which is where modern Paris is on, so just upstream, so just downstream from Paris, um, closer towards the coastline. They established themselves there in the 890s, sort of initially. And then at around 9-11, the then French ruler, Charles the Simple, decides that the best way to solve the Viking problem, the Nor Northman problem, is, as it were, to formally settle them, to acknowledge that they control the territories that they probably already have de facto for some time in exchange for their loyalty. And this is a kind of classic game of setting a thief to catch a thief. Let's use Vikings to stop more Vikings coming over. So he settles them in and around Rouen, at the heart of what would become Normandy. And that name, Northman, and gets transferred to there. So people start referring to the inhabitants of this region, including some of those who hadn't originally been Vikings, simply as Northmen in the region as Northmandy, i.e. Normandy. So uh, they eventually become Normans in modern English parlance. But actually, if we were speaking French or German, the term for Norman and the term for Northman, i.e. Viking, would be the same. So in essence, it actually originally means Viking pirates, uh, and it's referring to their descendants in northwestern France. Okay, so I think we we struggle with the the uh, the Norse in general because we're used to thinking in terms of you're either invading or you're pirating, and they're actually doing multiple things. Yes, they're pirating, but they're also establishing colonies and putting down permanent roots and all of that. And we're also used to thinking of nations with kings leading, and, and that really isn't the case, is it? Uh, in this, you have all sorts of different leaders who are doing all sorts of different things at different times, and they're interacting with each other. Can you kind of give us a sense of what, of, of just how unified and, and whatever this really is at this point? Yeah, so as you say, the Vikings are kind of busy doing lots of stuff. They're sometimes raiding, but they're also, when they're able to, turning raid into conquest, and there are various colonies they set up across various parts of the British Isles and Western Europe, most of which don't have a long history. So Normandy is kind of unique in that it's one of these colonies, or is somewhat unusual, and it's one that really took off. 
But the reason is precisely because, as you say, this is also a period of time when kingdoms are not hugely powerful and centralized. And so although I say the French king kind of settled them there, his effective control was not over all of modern France. He was actually uh, a king whose power was quite circumscribed. And one of the things he's doing, therefore, is he's basically acknowledging the fact that the Normans already control these territories. And he's doing so in exchange, therefore, for their loyalty. And what they start developing there is this duchy of Normandy, which is effectively an autonomous entity. So this is a period also where other powerful counts and dukes, the counts of Flanders or the counts of Anjou, who are to the east in the case of Flanders or to the southwest of Normandy in the case of Anjou, they're also increasingly independent players, players who kind of owe nominal loyalty to the French king, but very much nominally on a day-to-day basis. They call the shots in their own domains, not the French king. Okay, so we're obviously going to talk about um, Vikings or, or Norse who are going to go Viking and, and doing some conquesting, you know, some conquest out around. Who's the mover and shaker in, in Normandy at the point at which we start to see some, some expansion of the duchy into other areas? So what happens is that Normandy's evolution looks actually quite a lot like lots of these other so-called territorial principalities, these independent building blocks that we see in France, in that it gets going over the course of the 10th century, but it's really in the 11th century that we then see the dukes uh, centralizing power and really establishing themselves as these kind of independent players. And classically for us, it's the figure of William the Conqueror, who we most perhaps associate with Norman conquest, particularly with the Norman conquest of England in 1066, but it's actually already even earlier in his reign as Duke that we see other kinds of Norman groups starting to set out on conquest. So crucially, starting already in kind of the 1020s, 1030s, in the very early years of Duke William, we have Norman groups starting to settle in southern Italy uh, and setting up what would eventually be a very powerful Norman kingdom of Sicily there. So it seems to be something that's happening in the 11th century, kind of about 100 years after their initial settlement. So initially we see settlement and consolidation, and then about 100 years later we suddenly see new forms of settlement and conquest in the name of the Normans. And by this point they are Francophone, so they are effectively in terms of their language, they're French speakers, but they have this distinctive Viking heritage. All right. Well, we have so much more to talk about. So please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Levi Roach, Associate Professor of Medieval History at the University of Exeter, and we're talking about his book, Empires of the Normans, Conquerors of Europe. Our history buffs today are Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. Rick, 
Start us off. I will do just that. Levi, I, I read the book, and uh, I'm glad I'm not doing a family tree on trying to list who is whose father, son, daughter, granddaughter. It's just uh, quite a mess. But uh, the the book you you show where, of course, Normandy, Northwest France, but also the Normans go into Italy. They go into Byzantium, the Balkans, North Africa, Wales, Iberia, Scotland, Germany. Um, what was the principal motive of these people going in? You mentioned earlier in the opening they're they're colonizing, but what else was the principal motive for fanning out across Europe over this uh, roughly two, three hundred year period? I think like most large endeavors of conquest, it's crucially about fame and fortune. Uh, And I think both of those were very important to them. On the one hand, it was the possibility of securing wealthy lands and great material wealth as well. And so we're seeing people who get an appetite for conquest, who, once they're successful in one region, are almost immediately moving on to the next. So from southern Italy, we get these attempts to conquer the Balkans and to strike at Byzantium. Those are unsuccessful, but it's because they had the success in Italy. From England, we see the Normans expanding to Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. So it is kind of like a rising tide, if you will, and then seeking to conquer ever more lands. At the same time, beyond the kind of material wealth that's generated, I think the Fame is also hugely important to them. It's also very much an aristocratic male society that's driving this, where it is about one-upping one another, where competitive one-upmanship. And so we can see this in one of our main accounts of the Norman Conquest. William of Malmesbury says that William the Conqueror was motivated by the deeds that the Normans had been achieving in southern Italy. And he's reported to have said that it would be shameful to him if men of lower birth i.e. who are not of the ducal family, could achieve more than him. And while we don't know if it's true that William actually said this, I think it takes us to the heart of what William the Conqueror was probably thinking and the way those around him were thinking, which was, hey, look, those people who come from, you know, the middle to lower aristocracy here are winning a whole kingdom in southern Italy. What can we do that, to better that from our position? And what do they do? They go and conquer one of the wealthiest and most powerful kingdoms of Europe. Okay, Terry. Yes, Levi, I'd like to talk a little bit about Norman culture. If I were to visit England today, what examples would I still see of the influence of Norman culture in England? So the most obvious example that you'd see of Norman culture would be in terms of the great churches and cathedrals of this country. The vast majority of them are built in what we call Romanesque architecture. Uh, And that's a kind of distinctive form of architecture that became popular in the 11th century uh, and is popular in Normandy just before the major Norman conquests. And crucially, there's a huge rebuilding um, phase of the English church. And in the 50 years after the Norman conquest, every cathedral and major abbey church is rebuilt in this Romanesque style. So we have no cathedral, no major church in England survives as it existed in the Anglo-Saxon period. It was completely built over. And most of the new churches were bigger, were in the eyes of the Normans better, and for the most part then lasted the test of time. So there are great cathedrals like Ely, like Durham, and so on. So it's, it's very easy to see what the church looked like in terms of its material structures in the Norman period, and almost impossible to see what came before, because they so systematically built over it. And this, this seems to have been very much a conscious thing as well, showing we're better, we're going to do it in a better, bigger way, the ways we brought from Normandy. Okay, Levi, 
<clears throat> I'm interested in what makes the Normans so successful here. Um, they're running into um, sort of cultural neighbors uh, when they when William invades England. He has Anglo-Saxons, but he also has folks from Scandinavia. Um, he's he's in a very different sort of place in southern Italy. Certainly doesn't look anything like Scandinavia, or or whether he's branching into to you know North Africa. What do the Normans have going for them that the other that that the places they're going to don't? And I'm thinking militarily, but maybe also culturally and economically as well that allow them to be successful. And does that relate back to their Norse heritage, or is this? more of a French development? What, what, are they, what are they using to, to sort of be successful? In terms of the nuts and bolts, it's more of a French heritage. And this is a period, what we call sort of the Central Middle Ages, when we see Francophone culture actually take over large parts of Europe, not only in the British Isles, but also significant other parts. So ideals of chivalry, knighthood, castles, all of those are kind of social, economic, and, you know, military things that have been developed in the heartlands of France that are then exported. So in that sense, the Normans are paragons of a wider movement that we can also see exemplified by other French aristocratic groups. But they are particularly prominent, and this does seem to suggest that there is a slight competitive edge. I would say it's often slight, not massive. So over the Anglo-Saxons, for example, they're not massively uh, superior militarily. But what they do have in their favor is they do have a form of early knighthood, so fighting on horseback, heavily armed, specialized aristocratic fighters who are very successful. And they're combining this with castles. And castles are an important innovation because the early Middle Ages, the the previous centuries, have seen fortification, so big forts, which are fine if you've got lots of men. But what castles allow you to do, castles are actually very small and are designed to allow you to hold a fortification with a handful of men for potentially a fairly lengthy period of time. And for an invading elite, castles are the perfect bolt hole. So castles are perfect for controlling a place like England. Um, uh, they're also useful in places like Wales. Classically, has tons of them, but that's actually because Wales is harder to control because it's, it's hillier and more mountainous. But in places like England, castles come into their own. And so those do seem to give them a slight edge. I think the other thing, though, that really is playing in their favor is that they're willing to take massive risks and have them play out and be successful or unsuccessful. So Norman proto-states are set up and then die out in Iberia, in Byzantine territories of Asia Minor, in the Balkans, in North Africa. None of those Norman conquests stuck, but they gave it a go. And I think it was partly a cultural approach to daring do, to daring to win big and being willing to lose big as well in the process. And so... Uh, it's that kind of risk-taking culture, high risk, high gain, and they didn't always gain, but when they did, it was big. <laughs> Rick, <laughs> Levi, uh, I was uh, uh, interested. I, I know you listed multiple battles uh, all over Europe and in the Middle East and North Africa, um, and you obviously were focusing based on your your uh, research sources on on the elites. Uh, this had to have disrupted, I'm going to call them the little people, the common folk, uh, uh, in terms of their life, uh, casualties, things like that. Uh, how did it impact the, uh, the, the common peasant, the non-elites, if you will? 
I think that will have varied significant place to place and region to region. So conquest and political upheaval is rarely good if you're not from the elite classes. It's only bad if you're from them too. But if, if you're the local guy just trying to do your job on your, on your farm or, you know, or whatnot else, uh, political turmoil is the last thing you want or need. But at the same time, they were also often spared some of the worst consequences. So particularly in places like southern Italy, the Normans are a small elite who take over. They have no interest in going after the peasantry, getting rid of people, making things worse. They want to skim off profit the way the previous lords of these lands have, and they just want the profit to come to them, not to the previous lords. So once they've kind of taken over that elite level, they have no real interest in rocking the boat. And in the immediate years post-conquest, there isn't any dramatic evidence of kind of things getting worse for the local peasantry. In England... Famously, there are, there, there, there are old phrases of the Norman yoke. There's this idea that the peasantry was massively oppressed by the Normans. That's probably been overplayed in kind of old-fashioned 19th century scholarship. But there is a kernel of truth to that. In, the, in England, if you're a peasant, life is already getting worse before the Normans even get here. The elites are becoming more dominant. But the Norman conquest kicks those changes kind of those developments into into overdrive it turbocharges them so things were already getting worse under the anglo-saxons they get worse faster under the normans sure terry yeah yeah i'd like to talk about how the normans helped shape our english language as far as perhaps the words we use um personal names and surnames that can still be found today can you talk about that please yeah, so one of their obvious legacies, and this comes back, I think, also a little bit to that first question of the cultural impact. Another obvious one is, of course, famous examples that we tend to borrow words from French and use them for food, whereas using the traditional English terms when we're referring to animals. So, for example, you eat beef, which is the French term for the cow, whereas cow is the term that an Anglo-Saxon would have used for a pre-conquest English speaker. And so we get this clear sense of a signature of Norman impact where those who are eating the meat are Francophone for hundreds of years to come, whereas those who are making it, who are overseeing it in the fields, tend to be Anglophone. So we classically get this kind of real kind of class signature, if you will. And you do move into a world which for many, many years, the ruling elite of England is first and foremost Francophone, and they learn English as a second language. Most soon thereafter can speak English, but they speak it as a second language, and they even start having a distinctive dialect of what we call Anglo-Norman, that is French-English, that is different than the French of France. So you've got that kind of very clear linguistic impact on it that lasts in terms of modern English and a modern usage right up to the present day. The other thing you have is just a massive borrowing of vocabulary that happens slowly over time. But that's the reason why, although English is technically a Germanic language and our our grammar and our structures look more like Dutch or German, our actual vocabulary often looks rather more like modern French. All right. Um, Levi, I'd like to kind of focus back on Normandy itself. Um, Invasions have a tendency to to, to displace or move lots of people. They tend to be costly, so they put extra pressure on producers um, of the country that's doing the invading, um, at least on the short term, although you might get benefit on the back end. So can you talk to us about what Normandy looks like while all of these invasions are going on? What's what's happening within the, the duchy itself? 
Normandy itself is quite politically centralized and quite economically successful, which in a sense is one of the reasons why it can support some of these endeavors, but also is one of the reasons why those then wanting greater fame and fortune are being spurred on to look further afield. Um, so there's classic ideas that often it's younger sons driving these developments. It isn't always that, but there is a kind of a sense that if you want greater wealth, there are some limits to what you might still be able to achieve in Normandy, at least if you want to outdo the previous generation. So Normandy is, broadly speaking, economically prosperous. It is politically centralized on the Duke. And that's one of the reasons why William of Normandy is able to raise a large army and is able to, of course, leave Normandy for significant periods of time to go conquer England which is itself a significant risk. He's only able to do this because in the previous years he's twice defeated the King of France, um, uh, in one case in alliance with the Counts of Anjou, who are his main other local rivals to the southwest. So Duke William's basically beaten every leading political figure in northern France in battle uh, and therefore has bought himself the peace later on in his reign that allows himself then to come over and risk it all on England. And Normandy does start pretty soon then seeing the dividends actually of this, because England itself is a very wealthy kingdom. Uh, and William's able to, once he establishes himself there, very much skim off profits from England and plow them back into church building and other developments in Normandy. Okay. Rick. Levi, um, uh, I'd like to ask a question about uh, who Rollo was and what his role is. We, we've named a candy in the United States after him, so apparently he's... <laughs> He is quite famous, but but uh, could you give us a little uh, thumbnail sketch of, of Rollo uh, and uh, who he was and what his role was in all of this? Okay, so Rollo is the kind of famous dynastic founder of, of the Norman Ducal line, so he's the progenitor of the line that goes down to William and indeed beyond. His original name in Old Norse would have been actually something like Hrolfer, but we use the kind of uh, uh, francophone version of it that it's turned into Rollo for French speakers of France. And it's distinctive that, of course, that isn't itself a French name. It's a good Old Norse name. And he's the one who's kind of been leading that big group that was active on the Seine River, just kind of downriver a bit north of Paris for many years. And he's the one who then strikes this bargain with the French king, who kind of sets him up there in exchange for him converting, crucially, um, and for him then promising his loyalty and to defend these lands. And in Broadly speaking, the future Norman dukes do retain that loyalty to the French monarch and do quite quickly a culture. So one of the things that's distinctive is they adopt French names like Richard and William, which are precisely those names that they then go on to give to England in terms of what we were just chatting about a moment ago, that many of the names you think of as normal names, Richard, William, Robert, those are all Norman names, but they're Norman names that actually are in that sense French names. They're names that were adopted by the Normans in the hundred years or so after they settled. And then they bring these names with them to England, to Wales, to Scotland, to Ireland, to Southern Italy. Terry, we have about three minutes left, so pick your question wisely. All right, thank you. Yes, I just would like to piggyback about that on the names, because my understanding is that all the English monarchs descended from William, and also many of the Scottish clans. Is that Correct. And can you talk to us about that, please? Yes. So um, the, the future of England would be largely in terms of that Norman bloodline, but also the many future Scottish monarchs. So famously, perhaps the most famous medieval Scottish monarch of all, Robert de Bruce. De Bruce is, of course, a very good French name. It's not a Scottish name at all. Neither is Robert. He's of a great line of Anglo-Norman magnates originally from Normandy, come over to England and then moved on 
to Scotland. So you do very much have this, this signature of Norman dynasts then ruling these countries for many years to come with these distinctive names. So people like Robert ruling Scotland, also then the future Stuart dynasty is again a Norman import. So we have that kind of signature there. And William the Conqueror is succeeded in England by his son, William II, who is then succeeded by Henry I. Henry, again, is a good French name. It's not a traditional English name. And indeed, you have to wait a very long time till an English name eventually reasserts itself amongst the English royalty, and that is Edward. And that's no coincidence that that's one of the very few Anglo-Saxon names we actually still regularly use in the Anglophone world as a name, because most of the others, you know, Athelstan, I very much doubt you've ever met an Athelstan, but I bet you've met a few Edwards in your time. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Um, It is our custom to give our guests the last word. So, Levi, why do you think knowing about the Normans and what they were doing uh, in the Middle Ages is relevant in today's world? Well, I think it gives us a very clear idea of, in a sense, where we're coming from within the Anglophone world. The fact that we use originally French names like Robert, like William, like Richard, none of that would happen without the Norman Conquest. Things that you might just take for granted, like, indeed, your own name, there's a very good chance it comes from the Normans and from Normandy and from the Norman Conquest. Okay, I'm going to piggyback on that. I think also there's there's a, a value in knowing this history because not only does it affect lots of places, um, but it also kind of hangs on a thread. I mean, I don't think Americans, I don't know what it's like in in the UK, but I don't think Americans have a very good sense of how close William came to not being successful um, in, in his invasion. Yeah. And, and I, you know, we sort of take things for granted. Well, of course that happened mm. and that happened over and over again. And a lot of these, you know, there really are kind of hanging on the balance. And I, th- I think that's good for us to know that things aren't so linearly predestined, Ordained. I guess is the word. Ordained. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It- there wasn't a simple destiny. There was an alternative future where North Africa remained Norman and moved into the European cultural sphere. There's another one where Sicily didn't become Norman at all, as you know, there in terms of these things. So, yeah, these constellations aren't inevitable. And I think the other way, certainly sitting here in Britain right now, where these things are relevant, is the really complex history of British conquest, colonization, domination of Ireland with all the problems that came with it. That's a product of Norman conquest. Without the Normans, none of that happens. Yeah. Rick, I was wondering, since you read the book, what did you see as being most relevant? I was surprised uh, the tentacles of the Normans throughout uh, the European, Middle Eastern, and African theaters uh, had no idea. I, I thought that Scotland was always the Picts became civilized and then founded a great, <laughs> yeah. a great nation, which has been trounced on by the British and the Wales uh, were strange people in the mountains. But now I understand the lineage uh, of the leaders that created all these entities all came from the same, fundamentally same bloodline. All right. Well, we have a lot more. Um, to. We're going to wrap things up, uh, and so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant, 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 550th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme. It was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Levi Roach, Associate Professor of Medieval History at the University of Exeter. We've been talking about his book, Empires of the Normans, Conquerors of Europe. The history buffs for today were Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We'd like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.